at the beginning of the year. I'm not going to use that. Uh, not, not today. At the beginning of the year, we said we wanted to kind of make our vision clear. This is some of the things we have been building on for years. And then around COVID, we kind of got sidetracked and kind of, um, I, I feel like, lost the focus we need. And so as I said it at the beginning of the year, and I'll say it again. One of my visions is that everyone here would know and understand what we believe. We'll be very clear on that. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything we believe or see it 100% true, 100% uh, in agreement. But I want to make sure we're all, you all know where our church is coming from. And so for years, we've had what we call our three M's. It's our mission and our motivation, like why we do what we do and the method, the way we're going to do it. So far, we've talked about the first couple, if you're taking the notes. Our mission is to display and declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes as a review. But to display and to declare the excellencies of Christ. The motivation or the reason we want to do that, like why should we do that? Because someone has a gun to our head and we, okay, now you got to look different. Because No, it's because of the personal love and amazing grace of Jesus Christ, that we have experienced his love. He's loved us. The personal love we've experienced, the grace we've experienced, and now wanting to share that with others. And what we're going to talk about today is our method. Like, how are we going to accomplish that? Are we going to accomplish it by having bounce houses in the parking lot? Are we going to accomplish it through knocking on doors? Are we going to accomplish that through stand and scream on street corners with sandwich signs on? How are we going to accomplish that? And the way our church is, is wanting to accomplish that is to develop disciples through Christ-centered relationships. I think most of you agree we're a very relational church. And uh, that's how we best believe that disciples are made, are in relationship. Not a 15-week class, but through life-on-life -life relationships. So, um, again, if you're continuing on in the notes, I'm going to do a quick review. But before I do that, let me just pray one more time. It looks like there's a lot here. I'm going to move quickly through it, though, just so you know. So we're not going to probably discuss every little point on here. Um, you're like, wow. I, don't know. I know some of you guys got football games to get to. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this church. I do pray that you would help us as we move forward just to be able to all be on the same page. And I do pray ultimately that we would be bright, shining examples of your son in our communities, in our households, our workplaces, just that we would be shining examples of your son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our mission, again, displaying to declare the excellencies of Christ. One of the passages, this is all through the New Testament, but one of the passages we looked at was 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, what was happening is Peter's writing to this group of people, and they're being oppressed, like persecuted oppressed, like ripped out of their homes, families divided, uh, material goods taken away. Can you imagine living in that kind of situation? Government oppression, religious oppression. And what Peter told them, in essence, if you're taking notes, is he basically said, God's done something magnificent for you. Now live in a way that will turn people towards him. He said, the way that you're going to do that is by the way you live and the way you talk about Christ. So essentially to display, we want our lives to show 
the goodness of Christ. Like we don't want to talk about Jesus, talk about, talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus. And then our lives just look like some horrible disaster and angry, crude. We want to display Christ, but we also want to declare Christ. We don't just want to walk around and people go like, man, he's, there's something different about that guy. And be like, yep, you're never going to know what it is because I'm not going to tell you. So we need to display and to declare. Peter did not tell them. He said, I want to give you a purpose in life here. He's telling them, I want to give you a purpose. And the purpose wasn't go overthrow the government, this oppressive government. You guys need to change. Basically, what he says is, I want you guys to be bright, shining examples in the darkness. It's a dark world. I want you guys to shine brightly for Jesus Christ. So that's what we, our mission is for us to go out and we can get worked up with the situation, circumstances in the world, can't we? I do. Watch an hour or two of news, even a week. And you can get pretty caught up in the darkness and trying to fix the darkness when what we're called to do is to shine in the darkness. So that's our mission. Our motivation is the personal love and amazing grace of Christ. And what Paul was writing in one of the passages we looked, like, looked at before, they were kind of griping at Paul and saying, oh, you're too bold. You speak with too. And he said, hey, listen, you know what motivates me? You know why I'm so passionate? You know why I seem like a nut sometimes? Is because I've been loved so much by Jesus Christ. And that love compels me to do what I'm doing. And I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And so again, the love, if we've experienced that love, we want to be ambassadors for Christ also, right? If you've experienced something great, let's say you had a great experience at a restaurant. Don't you want those who you care about to know about that restaurant and experience that greatness? If you had a great experience with a doctor and someone else has some, some of the same issues, don't you want to share that? It's because you've experienced something. You've tasted of it, and now you want others to taste of that. So that's our motivation. Again, it's not because I got to be a good Christian. It's because we're enjoying experiencing what Christ has done and wanting to do that for others. So if you're taking notes, again, Christ's love and grace motivates us to make him known to others. We are now Christ's ambassadors. What is an ambassador? Representative. Now, let's just say that really be kind of real with yourself. Don't be all hard on yourself and don't be too easy on yourself. But just realistically, if you had to say this past week, what kind of representative for Christ were you? Like, I was an awesome representative. I was a good representative. I was so-so, not so good, horrible. Like, where are you in there? And I would bet money that if you felt like you're not so good, that you weren't tasting and enjoying the grace of Jesus Christ yourself. So I think that's part of where that happens is where you want to live that out, share that with others as you're tasting the love that Jesus Christ has for you. We'll talk a little bit more about that today, where you're enjoying the grace he's shown you. So my message is go out and be a better ambassador. Dog, it. Mine is drink deeply of the love of Jesus Christ. Drink deeply of the grace that he's shown you. Personalize it. Soak in it marinate your heart in the reality of what he's done for you and that will motivate you to live for him so today we're going to talk about our method developing disciples through christ-centered relationships i would say we're going to have two main focuses one 
we talk about develop disciples. So what is a disciple? We've been talking about that on Wednesdays. If you want to show up Wednesdays, you can get a lot more detail on that. And then we're going to talk about Christ-centered relationships or Christ-centered life. What does that mean? That's kind of like a bible phrase. It's not necessarily in the Bible, but people throw that phrase around. But let's, let's talk about what does that even really mean? So first of all, what is a disciple? When pre, I don't want to say pre-Christ because Christ is eternal, but pre-Christ Jesus on the earth, there were disciples, all kinds of disciples. And typically what a disciple was, was a disciple was somebody who would find a rabbi, find a teacher, find a philosopher, and then they would go sit under that person's teaching, try to learn that person's mindset idea and to imitate that person's way of life. Sometimes they would leave home for months at a time to go pick that up, to learn that, and then to carry that tradition or teaching or mindset, lifestyle, philosophy on their own. Does that make sense? So a disciple wasn't just this, uh, you know, Jesus all of a sudden came on the scene and there were disciples. There were all kind of disciples. Uh, Paul even talked about, like, uh, he was a disciple of Gamaliel, one of the chief Pharisees. And so it's like you, you would find people that you would sit under and try and learn their teaching. So I just want us to have that context. I think a disciple, a good definition is found in Matthew 14 or Matthew 419, the verses there on the paper. He, Jesus, said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but if you're filling in the blanks, a disciple is one who's following Christ, being changed by Christ, and is on the mission of Christ. So he says, come and follow me. That would mean walking in his steps, obeying him, just like the disciple pre-Jesus would follow their rabbi or teacher. And I will make you, he's going to change them. What were, the, what were the 12 disciples like before we talked about this a little bit Wednesday? Before they met Christ, they're a bunch of fishermen. They were, yeah, tax, they even tax collectors, which was probably cheat, cheating, you know, cheating son of a gun. They were guys uh, that even through their discipleship process chickened out. Uh, Peter denied Christ, even cursing. Later, they all abandoned him when he was going through. So the discipleship idea was they followed him, but they didn't follow him perfectly. It was this process. They followed him, but they were being changed by him. That's not who they ended up in the end, is it? They ended up becoming fishers of men and then affected many, many people. They got on the mission of Jesus Christ. So when we think of discipleship, think of maybe the difference between being born and learning to walk. Salvation is being born, made new. What can you do to be born? You don't do, and you have no hand in your being born. But becoming a disciple and walking and maturing, you have to do some things. Even as a little kid, people coach you along. Okay, uh, you know, to get Eddie to take your first steps, I used to wear a little watch. Uh, anyway, I was going to make a watch cap, but I'm not. But I had a watch. Um, 
but she loved that watch. So I put her, I held her, you know, and got her, you know, how they do the little shaky thing. Got her to take a couple steps going after that watch. And so the idea there is like, it was a process. It was being born again, being saved, being given eternal life is a one-time event, like being born. Being a disciple is a process. It's a walk. It's something you grow into. So we want to develop disciples, people that are following Christ, people that are cha being changed by Christ, people who are then, we say on the mission of Christ, but you may be saying getting others on board, become make you fishers of men. So in other words, you're getting others on board with what we're doing here and our love for Jesus Christ. Y'all with me? Um. So again, if you're doing notes, you can go ahead and just turn to the next page. I told you, I would encourage you. I have reflection questions in here. I would encourage you if you're one of those people like, man, I got to start reading my Bible. I don't even know where to start. I, this would be the kind of thing you could take home and look at this week. And maybe just Monday, you do a couple of questions and think through them or write down answers. Tuesday, and it'll refocus you on what we've talked about, reinforce it. And those questions will help you think a little more deeply and a little more personally. So we're not going to take the time to do that now, but that may be something you could just tuck in your Bible. I'm going to, I'm going to look this over and think through this. If you have a hard time, maybe getting on a daily reading plan or something like that to where you can be feeding yourself spiritual food during the week. So I'd encourage you to go over those, even though we're not going to necessarily go over those all today. So what is a Christ-centered relationship? We're saying to develop disciples. We just talked about what a disciple is. So we should be developing disciples. All of you have little worlds that you're connected to that I'm not connected to, right? We should be developing disciples through Christ-centered relationships. So we just learned what a disciple is. What is a Christ-centered relationship? That's nice Bible talk, but what the world does that mean? So we're going to start here, if you're filling in the blanks. Christ-centered relationships start with a Christ-centered life. Christ-centered relationships start with a Christ-centered life. So we're going to talk about that first. Like We want to have Christ-centered relationships, but that means we need to be Christ-centered people. What's typically... At, in, you could say Christ-centered. Um, there's different ways you could say this. Uh, this is just a phrase we're using. Um, you know, in Colossians, it talks about, do not set your mind on things of the earth, but set your mind on things above, where Christ has died and uh, is, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So the idea is like, you're kind of not just living in this, with this world, but you're about Christ. So that's where we get that idea. If you look at the little wedges on the circle there, we all have these kind of wedges in our life, right? And you may go, I don't have the, some of you are like, I don't have the money wedge in there. I wish I did, but, uh, but we all have these different ideas. You could probably add 50 more if you wanted. It's just to, to uh, convey an idea that we all have these things going on in our life. And very often, what is the, center of all those things me right my free time my health what i want to do with my money what i want to do with my relationships what i think about politics how it's affecting me and so i understand that 
And the reality of it is maybe another way to say this rather than a Christ-centered life would be Christ on the throne. And very often, and I think about this for myself, and it's so convicting because I feel like we pop in and out of this. And we'll talk a little bit more about the practical thing because I hate it when people make stuff really mystical and then they'll like, tell me a normal dude how to do this. Don't just say have a Christ-centered life and wake up in the morning and everything's about Jesus today. That just doesn't, you don't fall into that. So we'll talk about some practical things about that. But one of the pictures I have sometimes is I picture Christ on the throne and him going, I'm the Lord, I'm the boss. I'm in charge of your life. I'm in charge of all this. Let me tell you how to do this. And very often what I do, and it's not blatant, but it's kind of like, okay, okay. But I work my way onto that throne. And Christ does not share a throne. He goes, okay. You got it. Do it your way. But everything that you do your way, you got to roll with all the consequences and all the nastiness that comes like that. If you want to be the boss, you want to run the show, you want to run your life your way. You want to do your marriage your way? Okay, that's fine. You want to raise your kid your way? Okay, fine. You want to hand your friend? Okay, good. I'll, I'll, I'll be here ready to get, hop back on the throne when you're ready to be done with your way. So when you talk about having that Christ-centered life, it's the idea that we grow into letting Christ be the boss, be the ruler, be the Lord. Again, in salvation, Christ is our Savior. In discipleship, Christ is our Lord. There's a difference. In fact, I think we're going to talk about that this Wednesday, Savior and Lord. Um, so you kind of get the idea where we talk about having a Christ-centered life. So I just want to say, too, the other thing is, I wrote a little way to maybe think about this. A practical way to do this is live in a constant state of awareness. And you're like, well, okay, great. How am I going to do that? We'll talk about that in a minute. But practically speaking, if we could do this, live in a constant state of the awareness of what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do. You could probably think about a lot of different ways, but this is a very tangible way to help you start doing that. How many of us can live in a constant state of awareness of anything? None of us. If I say that, it sounds like, okay, what? I'm going to go be a monk somewhere and live up on a mountain and just try and stay in a constant state of awareness. I have to look at a set of plans or I have to read a spreadsheet or I have to make deliveries and I got to pay attention to the traffic. What do you mean? Stay in it. So what I would say, practically speaking, would be to take a sticky note and put it on your dashboard if you're a delivery driver, and it would be to go focus on Christ or something to those, some practical things. Set some reminders on your phone. You guys have uh, reminders, phone reminders that'll ding three times a day or whatever it is to kind of like refocus us. And you're kind of like, so what should I focus on? Just picture Jesus? I personally think this is what helps me sometimes. To one, focus on what he has already done for me. To focus on the fact that my sins have been washed away, that he died for me, that he loves me, that he has made me new, that he's given me eternal life. And just to kind of take a minute to think about that. You don't have to spend the whole afternoon, but just kind of like, boom, and get back focused on that. The other is that Christ empowers me. Christ lives in me. It says that in Romans 8. 
I don't really personally understand that. I also don't understand how the Holy Spirit lives in me, but it's true. And to think, how can I love my wife? You guys all know she's awesome. We talked about it this morning, and she is. But there's days when she's not easy to love. And it's like, I got it easy, because if we reverse it, there's days, there's months and months and years that I'm not easy to love. But we have Christ in us. We have, we have the resources of God Almighty. And many times, we'll talk about this later, but many times I think part of it is we're not abiding, we're not trusting in faith that he's really done it. We'll say, Father, just help me to have the patience. to." And I, I do this too. And the reality is, okay, that's fine to pray. But you've given me the Holy Spirit. You've given me the life of Christ. I have the indwelling life of Christ in me. I have the patience. Help me to say no to myself and just live out that patience towards so-and-so. I already have it because I have the life of Christ in me. And so you begin to think like, okay, what has he done? Or maybe you need to think about, okay, I'm getting ready to go into a meeting. Uh, I have the power of Christ to, to stand firm and to, to, to be loving but firm on this subject. And then one of the other things is what will he do? One is he's going to glorify us. But you know how we talked about earlier, Paul said one of his motivations was the love of Christ. I didn't tell you this today, but I told you before. A few verses above that, you know what else he says motivates him? That he knows he's going to stand before Jesus as his judge. And so when we think about that, we begin to think, okay, Christ is going to be judging me. Not to send me to hell, if I'm a believer, not to send me to hell, but to say, did you do good? If you did good. I'm going to give you some heavenly rewards. What has Christ done for me? What is he doing in me, through me? What has he given me? What do I have now? And what will he do in the future? And if you begin to start looking at life and viewing, okay, my family, I need to look at it through what has Christ given me? Well, he's given me tons of love and forgiveness. Talks about in Ephesians 4, as Christ has forgiven you, Forgive others. Okay, he's done that for me. Do you see what I'm saying about having a Christ-centered life? And if we begin to do this, it's a thing that happens more and more and more. None of us are going to do it perfectly because all of us crawl back on that throne, don't we? It's the sin nature. We will want to do that. We want to be God. That's the original thing in the garden, what was happening there. You will be like God, Satan told him. I'm like, oh, really? I'll know everything I God. He got tricked. And we kind of want to be God of our own life. We don't want someone. Who else? Who here likes somebody running their life for them? Who here wants someone else to run their life? I don't, but that's what God wants to do. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, he's been like, I want to run your life. You're like, well, in theory, yeah, I do want you running my life. But when the rubber meets the road, sometimes we don't, right? Is it just me? We'll start all the spiritualizing and like, well, this is really kind of just that. And this. Okay. Any questions or comments? All right. So continuing on in the notes, it says, Christ-centered relationships happen when I make Christ my highest priority in life 
and then relate to others based on what his word says. When I make Christ my highest priority in life, and then relate to others based on what his word says. So when I have my life, like I'm making Christ and Christ being the Lord, and again, we're going to bounce in and out of that, but that becomes what we're thinking about more than what I want, I want, I want, or what other people are saying I should do, but more like this is about my relationship with Jesus Christ. That's going to leak into all the other areas of my life. And the same is true here. When we do that, we make Christ a priority in our own life, and then we look at what does he say to do. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through, but through a lot of the epistles, that's what he does. He'll go through the first half of the book, and he'll say, this is what's true about you. This is what I've done for you. This is what's new about you. This is what's working in you. And then he gives some very specific groups of people. He usually starts with the church, and that's what we have on here, fellow Christians. He usually has these categories of people, fellow Christians, family members, right? He'll talk about husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husband, children, obey your parents, fathers, do not exasperate your children. He goes through some very specific relational things after they, he's established that they're having a relationship with Christ. Uh, slaves and masters uh, in, in Colossians, he says, let your speech be seasoned with grace so that the outsiders, the unbelievers, would be turned towards them. So when we look at kind of that pattern in scripture, we see we really have four categories of relationships. If you look at that circle, you're like, I only see three. The first is my relationship with Christ. That's the primary relationship. And then my relationship with other believers, my relationship with those in my household or my family, and then those outside, the unbelieving world. And we let what God says dictate those relationships. That's a Christ-centered relationship. So is this making sense before when I was just like, develop disciples through Christ-centered relationships? What do you hear being the key to Christ-centered relationship? What's the key to it? A Christ, a Christ-centered life. Calm down, you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's a Christ-centered life. I think we're going to move quickly through this uh, passage. But I think that just sounds so overwhelming. But the, the verses, the last two verses we're going to end on, I feel like will hopefully give you some hope for that. So we're going to go through Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. You're like, I thought this was the end of the sermon. Oh, my goodness. What's he talking about? We're going to move through it quickly. But basically what Paul is saying is Paul prays this prayer for the Ephesians. You remember we did a lot of study in Ephesians. It was a modern big city that was known for paganism. Even Paul's, center, Paul's prayer is Christ-centered. He's praying for their spiritual being. He doesn't say, help an earthquake to knock down all the pagan shrines. He He's praying not for externals, but for internals. It's easy for us to focus on externals, how I feel, what's happening to me, the circumstances. But what he prays for is something internal for them. And so he's praying that they ultimately would be filled up with the fullness of God. And if you think about that, does that sound realistic? If I said, hey, you know, just hoping that Tim can be full of the fullness of God this week. You're like, oh, that's a nice spiritual thing. But what in the world, how could that be? 
And we've given this example before. If you picture like maybe a mason jar and I scoop up some sand and ocean water in it, it contains all the elements and characteristics of the ocean. It's the fullness of the ocean, even though it's not the whole ocean in that, it has the essence of the ocean in it. Now, let's say I decide not to do that. I put some nuts and bolts in it. I put some golf balls in it. I put uh, a watch in it. And then I put some ocean water in it. It has some of that, but it's not whole of that essence. And so the ideal, he's praying that their lives would just be filled up with the fullness or the character or traits of God, that that would be their life experience, not a bunch of other things. And so he prays, this is his prayer in, in Ephesians 3.14. He says, for this reason, I'm on the next page, if you're taking notes, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you to be according to the riches of his glory. So one, Paul prays with, if you're doing notes, humility and confidence. His humility is he bows his knees before the Father. And confidence is according that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. How many riches does God have? How many resources does God have? So if I said, I'm going to buy Ned a Christmas gift based on my riches, according to the riches I have. And then you had, whether you love him or hate him, Elon Musk. And Elon Musk said, I'm going to buy Ned a Christmas present based according to the riches I have. Who's getting going to give him the bigger, better present? According, like, I have such little resources, but he's saying, I'm praying this to God who has endless resources. So what I'm praying for you guys here, God has all the resources to do it. It's not too big. What I'm asking God to do is not too big. That's what he's saying. So he prays with this humility and confidence. And he says, here's what I want you, the prayer. This is what I'm asking God to do. Ephesians 3, 16b, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That's what we need is our inner man. It's not externals. If you have your inner man strengthened, you can withstand the externals, the feelings, the circumstances, if you are strong in the inner man. That word might is where we get our word dynamite from. It has the idea of ability, power, strength. And so he says, I want your inner man to be big and powerful through the strength of the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit not to just be there, but to make you internally strong. That's what he prays for them. And this is why I use this passage is this is just one angle of looking, one dimension, one side of looking at what a Christ-centered life might look like. A Christ-centered life means that you're going to be, uh, the notes here says, become internally strong by the power of the Holy Spirit. We all want strength, don't we? God can give you his strength in the inner man. And next he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That idea of dwell is that not just like that he would just be in my heart. We all possess, like I said, the spirit of Christ, however you want to phrase that. But this is to be at home. He wants Christ to be at home in our Hearts, which is lives. They would use that phrase as like what your life is all about. The innermost part of, of something. You know, we say like get to the heart of a matter. It's like 
what's the in what's at the bottom of it and so what he's saying here is i want you to be strengthened and i want christ to be at home in your life i don't want him to be a visitor i have as an example here what's the difference between being a visitor in someone's home and dwelling in that home and living in that home Let's say a visitor comes over. Do, does a visitor have rights to move your furniture around? Does a visitor have rights to remodel the kitchen? No. And sometimes that's how we treat Christ. Like he's like, I want to rearrange this. I want to, we got to remodel this. He's like, yeah. He's like, am I at home here? Or am I a guest? Like, I can't touch that. And you're like, closet. I got a bunch of dark secrets in that closet. I don't want anyone to know about Jesus. Don't get close to that stuff. Those are my favorite habits. Don't get into that habit closet, please. Stay out of there. You no, know, if he's at home, he's he's actively at work and in and about all the parts of our life. That's what he prays. That he would dwell in ours. And it's through faith that that happens as we trust him, right? You got to trust that he will be looking out for our best interests, that he's doing what's right for us, that we. Uh, trust him what he has done what he is doing like i said instead of sometimes praying the wimpy prayer like i just want to have patience instead we need to trust you've given me patience help me to have love for so and so and i understand the prayer and i've prayed those same prayers but i'm more and more convicted that i need to stand on i don't want to be wishy-washy as if i don't have love i have you you died and gave me life so that i could display it I don't want to pray that I could have it. I want to pray that I would let unleash it on those around. And so, again, that idea of just being able to trust him. And so that's the, the line there it says, trust is vital to a Christ-centered life. That Christ may dwell or be at home in your life or your hearts through faith as you trust him. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19 says that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So, so far he's prayed that they would be strong in the inner man. He's prayed that Christ would dwell and be at home in their heart. Now he's saying, I want you to know the unknowable love of jesus christ how high how wide how deep i want you to know his love let me just ask you does having a christ when we looked at those other circles that doesn't necessarily look fun does it it's like oh, he's gonna be in charge of my finances he gets to do now let me ask you this does this sound good being strengthened in the inner man christ dwelling in our hearts at home in our hearts Knowing the unknowable, like, does this sound good? He doesn't say, when he's saying this here, I don't think he means, I want you to be able to recite all the characteristics of Jesus's love. I want you to be able to write down what that means. I want you to do, be able to do an essay on it. I want you to be able to logically walk through it. He's saying, I want you to know it. You think there's a lot of things you could, do you could know about a lot of different things right i could go read books and books about frogs and frogs and all this and this kind of frog and that kind of frog and whole different experience if i go out to a pond and i start trying to catch frogs and hold a frog or have a frog pet or you could say like i know horses man i read horses the, the this 
breed, blah, 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 in this breed, boom, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you get a horse and you try and get on a horse or you try and put a bridle in a horse's mouth or whatever all those things are. There's a difference. And I think this is one of us as Christians, myself included. We know about Jesus' love. And we can even quote it and tell others about it when they're having a tough time that he loves you. He forgives you. He died while you were against him. He will never give up. But when it comes to knowing the love and just being able to go, I know that love because I've had it. I've had it on me, in me, through me. I've experienced his love. My heart has been opened up to his love. Do you see the difference there? And I think that's one of our biggest hang up as Christians is I feel like personally for my own life, a switch flipped. When I realized the grossness of my sin, I'd gotten a really twisted up relationship. It was so convicting, so horrible, so humiliating. This was probably now decades ago. But when that happened, somehow in there, I realized that Jesus loved that sinner. This was after I was saved. And it transformed my life. It made me realize. It gave me a whole different, it wasn't intellectual, it wasn't academic, it wasn't obligation. It was, I've just been loved beyond what I should be loved. And it is secure. That is what I think Paul's saying here. I want you to know that kind of love, the love that he has for you. If you're filling in the gaps there, it says, when Christ is the center of our life, we become firmly planted and made stable in his love. People here ever doubt his love? Do you ever doubt his love? You doubt yourself like, oh, I messed up so bad. He must not love me anymore. He must not care. He must have shut the door on me. Well, it says here being rooted and grounded in love. When you know his love, you become rooted and grounded. What are some characteristics of a tree that's rooted and grounded? It's healthy. Pretty. Stable, right? Doesn't blow over. A lot of us, we see what happens. These We have a windstorm, these palaverdies especially. You do a little water, 20-minute trickle on top. Wind comes, pink. But rooted and grounded. If you want to become stable, settle into the love that Jesus Christ has for you. He says that you would be able to comprehend. And that means to completely lay hold of, to apprehend, to grab a hold of, to lay hold of, to make one one's own if you're filling in the blanks there to make it your own not to understand it so you can explain it to someone else but that you would personalize the love of christ and it's kind of interesting he goes i want you to know the love of christ which passes knowledge it's like i want you to know the unknowable love of christ and so no matter how much we know the love of christ there's always more to know there's always more for us to know so going down to the last bit of the passage, I know this is a lot today. Um, I'm trusting just a few things will stand out that you needed to hear. Like I said, some of this sounds, you, we have a big array of people in here, some that are really pursuing Christ and some who are maybe new to it, and maybe some who are you know, kind of wandered away and just coming back or wherever you're at in there. When we talk about having a Christ-centered life, it's easy for us to have a money-centered life, a circumstance-centered life, 
a comfort-centered life, whatever that is. But this Christ-centered life is possible for us to have. Check it out. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Jesus, by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. He's able to do it, right? Now, to him who is able to do so this kind of life, he can do it. But not only he can do it, he can do it exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what you ask or even think. I mean, he has the riches of glory. So he can do this for you and for me. He can give us a Christ-centered life, Christ-centered relationships, and it will transform us as human beings. This all may sound too good to be true, but according to verses 20 to 21, God is able to do it through his power that works in us. If you're like, man, that was a lot. I, I agree it is a lot. I would say this. Start here and realize that we cannot rely on ourselves. We need Jesus Christ. And that you would draw near to him in a desperate sense every day. We go through our lives and we think we're doing a fine job. But the reality is we need Christ. And we need him to be running our life. We need him on the throne, not us. And so begin to say, when you, you realize that, just go, I crawled up on the throne in this area or that area. Will you please come take over and be Lord in this area, in this relationship? Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We do thank you for the love that uh, he has shown and demonstrated and he has for us. Help us to live with our lives centered on him. I know it is all about him, but it's so easy. I just confess for myself, admit it's so easy to be distracted with a thousand other things that this just almost seems uh, impossible. But we are trusting in your word that we can have Christ-centered lives, that we can be made strong, that Christ can be at home in our hearts, that we would know the unknowable love of Christ, that we could be filled with the fullness of God. We just by faith declare that that is true because you've said it's true. Help us to just live as if it is true. This week, help us to just rest in what you already have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name.